righteous. You are holy, God, even in the midst of the pain, the struggle, the heartache, the sense of failure. Jesus, you are that lamb that stands in the center of the throne looking as if it had been slain. You are the triumphant one, the lion of Judah, Jesus. You are the one that by your blood you purchased men for God from every language and tribe and people. You are the one that bought us to be your very own, to love us, Father, like a father loves his children. You are the one, Lord God, who is holy, holy, holy. The angels cry it. The 24 elders, the four living creatures, all of heaven declare that our God is holy. He is good. His love endures forever. Even in the midst of struggle and trial and heartache, our God is seated on the throne and he rules benevolently. He rules. And we thank you, Lord God, and we declare this truth. You are holy, God. You are holy, God. You are good. Your purposes are beyond our understanding. But we know in the end, Lord, that all of these things are working together to achieve your greater good, your set purposes, your amazing, amazing good. We refused to be distracted today by those things that are keeping us from pursuing you with our whole heart. You are good. Your love endures forever. We just humble our hearts before you, Lord God. We declare we may not understand, but you do. We may not be able to see the future. We may not be able to see all those things around us, but you do. And we rest in that truth. Father, where there is anxiety, bring peace right now to every heart. Peace. That peace that passes all understanding from the God of peace. And guard our hearts and minds in Christ with it. Settle our hearts before you, Lord God. Stay our minds on you as we choose to walk in that peace. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father. Lord, I, I just ask that today, as any of us come here this morning, that you would give them a gift. You would give them a truth. You would give them a hope, a renewed hope. That, Father, that in this, our hearts would be encouraged. That, Father, where we are needing breakthrough whether it's in our finances or in a relationship or something at work, that, God, you would give us that breakthrough because this is the Father's heart of our God. And we appeal to your Father's heart, God. And I just pray, God, as you give us these gifts, may we treasure those gifts of truth. Encourage us today. 
And Lord, as we look into your word, I just ask you, Father, for wisdom to be given to us, that the Spirit of God would speak these truths very personally to our hearts. Spirit of God, you show us, Lord, how we are to walk in these truths that we're going to look at this morning. And would you empower us by your spirit, not just right now and a sense of determination, but tomorrow, this week, next month, to walk in these truths, God. These are for us, the children of the Father. And I thank you, Lord, for it right now. Spirit of God, would you speak to us? Would you do that, Spirit? And we ask all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, you may be seated. We're going to be looking at this concept of prosperity this coming Wednesday. And, and I'm choosing this very purposely because out in the world, and I'm talking about even in Jesus' church, there's, there's a misunderstanding about prosperity. And you're going to find generally that this concept of God's prosperity tends to polarize his church. And I'm going to suggest to you that neither of those polarizations are biblical. But there is, there is this balance that God calls us to, these promises that he calls Israel and his church to that I want us to look at. So here's what we're going to do. During the next couple of days, and some of you have already done this, but during the next couple of days, you're going to be asking God to show you a verse, a passage of scripture, and which means you're going to have to get into the word to find that, right? Uh, we'll, we'll let you use a concordance, but... You have to get into the word. But in getting into the word, I want you to find a verse about prosperity, about wealth, okay? And what is God's perspective on this? But I don't want you to just discover some truth. I want you to allow the Spirit of God to speak to your heart about your verse, and I want you to bring that, okay? With having spent a little bit of time in it and some understanding, but this is what the Spirit of God is speaking to me and how to live it, okay? So we're going to have a bunch of people sharing. I'm going to kind of lead the discussion and maybe ask a few questions, not to put you on the spot, but the group on the spot, but I want us to, to talk about these. And we generally can get through a number of scripture passages. If all 30 of you bring one, then that we've had about 30 on Wednesday nights, then we're probably not going to get to all of them, but I hope we can get to yours. The truth is we're going to go cover as many as we can. Many of us throughout life have worked really hard at something. And I want you to just imagine something that you've worked really hard at. When Meredith and I first met, we quickly began to fall in love. Oh my goodness. I was brain dead, honestly, or it felt that way, in a good way, in a good way. I missed exits while I was driving. I, I couldn't focus on my studies. So in that way, it was a bad thing, but it was a really good thing, whatever. And we began to work on our relationship. We had been single, obviously, our entire lives. I got married, I think I was 23 years of age. So 23 years of thinking about Mike Curtis, and now I'm thinking about this relationship. We were totally committed to Christ. I, I felt a call to full-time ministry. Um, we, we were thinking about missions, maybe the Ukraine, maybe Peru. We were thinking about how can we serve God because we're in this for the long haul. We wanted to give our lives to the kingdom of God. We were completely dedicated to Jesus Christ. So we thought. We got married. And we expected total bliss, right? 
living happily ever after. And within that first year, I would have to say for Meredith and I, that was probably one of the hardest years that we have ever lived. And I was constantly praying, well, Lord, you know, if, if Meredith would just change here and here and here, then this marriage could really work. And then behind the scenes, she's kneeling down, oh, Lord, please change Mike in the following areas. And, and we just began to realize that this is really, really hard. We did not want to use the D word. Divorce, right? We, we, now, that's off the table as Christians, but I tell you what, we felt like life itself was pushing us in that direction. We began to realize just how flawed the other person was, I mean, that we were. And so consequently, we're, we're being challenged. God, you have more in our marriage than this. What is wrong? And it, it was almost as if everything that we talked about turned into an argument. And, and, and we had to come to certain realizations, but our goal to have this marital bliss, to, to discover the amazing purposes of God for us as a couple, and then someday a family, we felt like it was just way out there. It was like so beyond us. God, what? We're, we're, we're committed to you. We're trying to be committed to one another. What is happening? We had, we had sown so much into this relationship, and yet we were struggling so hard. When we got married that first year, actually our first three years, we were literally in the desert of Phoenix, Arizona. Now, I say that because some of you, that's exactly where you feel you are. You're in the desert. You feel like maybe one of the Israelites in those 40 years of wandering in the wilderness saying, God, where's the promised land, right? And you're struggling. You're really trying to sow, but it is hard. And I want to just tell you that God has something very good for his people, but there is a process that he wants to take you through. I want to look at that just a little bit. It's going to be, it's going to be very basic, but if we can get these truths I'm going to tell you that God can transform you. I can't promise you he's going to transform your marriage because a marriage consists of two people and not just one. But he can transform you. And he can make you the best wife or the best husband. He can make you the best employee. Maybe you stepped into a job expecting so much more than what you're experiencing right now. God, what's up with that? I've been sewing. I got my education. I, I, I went through the whole education. I got my master's. And there was no opening. For, to pastor, and I had to wait on God, and lo and behold, as the door began to open, he called my wife and I away from where we were in Virginia Beach, Virginia. I was like, God, I don't understand this. You do things so, I wanted to say so poorly, but obviously that's not the case, but so differently than the way I think and the way I want to do things, right? Can you relate with this? You can sow and yet not see what you're sowing for. We sow for a harvest, right? Now, Cole, 
brought a, a Bible study, a word for us. Uh, we're actually going to be looking at Psalm 126 today, a little bit more of the passage. Cole had us focus on one particular verse, and we're going to see a little bit more of the context. Sowing is hard. There's more that we're going to look at, but I want to tell you, I'm gonna, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take what Cole shared and what I shared this past Sunday and kind of move us forward to something that I believe is going to really be an encouragement to us. I was, expect, I, was, I was working hard, sowing in marriage, expecting to yield bliss, but all I got were blisters. All right? And that's the, that's the way we feel. That's the way we feel. We're expecting bliss, and all we get are blisters. So how do we experience more of this bliss in all of our Christian life? Now, for review... Excuse me. We were looking at Revelation 1 through 5. Five chapters, we looked at the seven letters, and then the last two chapters, which have to do with worship and the significance and, and the importance of why Jesus called John up into heaven to see for two chapters the throne room of worship, where that worship focused, and it focused on the Lion of Judah, who was the Lamb of God, and then, only after he saw that for two chapters, church, does he go into, does he launch into the next 15 chapters of redemptive judgment? And that's how we saw them. Those judgments that are described in Revelation 6 through 20, those are redemptive judgments. The whole purpose is to bring judgment upon the earth, but to cause the people of the earth to look and say, God is my only help. God is the one who created me, and he is the one who can fix this, who can change me, who can change my circumstances. Only he can do this. We, we realize that many people do not. And these judgments aren't just for the last seven years before Jesus comes out. These judgments are throughout the church age, though some are reserved for right before Christ comes. But they have a purpose. And John, before he saw these judgments, he needed to see this throne room. And, and we saw certain things that were imperative for us to understand God's set purposes of these judgments. The last thing that we looked at last week was this scroll. The scroll was to be opened. But we discovered this scroll could not be opened because no one was found worthy. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth, that is, those who had died. No one was found worthy. And it says, John began to weep profusely, not simply because we're all unworthy, but because the scroll would now remain sealed, unopened, and what, which meant anything contained in that scroll would not come to pass. That's the purpose. That's the significance of the scroll remaining unopened. It would not come to pass. And we discovered that that scroll was actually a picture of this intimacy with God in this relationship with God and all of the inheritance and blessings that he has for us, and specifically at the end of the age. And so we see two chapters at the very end of Revelation describing the bliss for all those who have followed the Lamb. We get this picture when, when the temple, the sanctuary, is opened up 
And when they look inside, they see the Ark of the Covenant. But there is no veil, not even a torn veil. There is no veil. And that picture communicates God dwelling with men, with no sin, with the curse lifted, to see that we, that the old order of things is completely gone and the new order has come. So quickly, if you would turn with me to Revelation 21, and, and we're just going to look very briefly at those ultimate blessings that we have in Christ that John, the reason why he weeps is because we get this impression he knows at least something of what's in that scroll. If he didn't know anything of what that scroll contained, why would he weep? Why would he be sad? If it just contained judgments, why would he weep? See, it doesn't contain the judgments. The judgments are on the outside. What's inside is the inheritance of all of those who would eventually repent and turn to God. It's our inheritance. But those, John knows it because he had just, in the seven letters, been told seven times to him who overcomes. And I just encourage you, maybe this coming week, look back at those seven letters. Look back at all of those to him who overcomes. Every single letter ends that way. To him who overcomes, I will give the authority, the right to eat from the tree of You will never see the second death. On and on. You're going to receive a white stone. All of these symbols, all of these promises. So John knows something of them. And I'm going to read just a passage of what that future holds. But we're only going to camp out there for a short while because what I really want to do is I want to see, I want to, we're going to look at one phrase in Hebrews 6 that talks about then being experienced now. And then we're going to look at Psalm 126 because these blessings will happen in full then, but we get to experience them in part right now. And I want us to know how then do we walk in this? God has an inheritance and blessings for us now to lay hold of. Not just then, then we're going to experience them in full. How can we experiencing, how can we begin to experiencing, experience them more fully now? Revelation 21, are you there? Verses 1 through 5. Then, this is now the fulfillment of all of these covenantal blessings of God to his people. Then, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now is the dwelling of God with men. The veil is completely gone that separated the holy of holies from the holy place. Holy of holies is where God was, enthroned above the Ark of the Covenant. The holy place was where man was. That is completely gone. God now dwells with men. Do you see that? Now they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write, the, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. The old order of things is gone. The new order of things, untainted by sin and the curse, has come. Tears are gone. True. Complete 
joy that you and I have never experienced. Our joy has always been tainted by the curse on the earth, by the curse in relationships, by the presence of sin and hurts. Then, however, joy unspeakable, tears gone, full joy will, will come. The curse has been lifted. In chapter 22, verse 3, it says that the curse will be no more. The curse extends throughout the universe, church. Everything that God created, not just you and me, everything has been tainted, affected, and been broken by this curse that will all be lifted. And his blessings fully come. All things will be made new. Death will be gone. Life to the full will come. We call this eternal life. Eternal life is something that we experience now, church, through faith in Christ, but then in its entirety, resurrection body included. Sin. The presence of sin. Not just the, the, the penalty of sin. The penalty of sin for us is completely gone. There's no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. The power of sin has been broken, but we now make a choice every day whether we allow that power to impact us or not. But the power has been broken because we are no longer slaves. So that comes to us in part, but the presence of sin, the presence of sin is still here. But then it will be completely gone. The penalty, the power, and the presence of sin, all of it will be gone. <laughs> As Jesus said, <clears throat> excuse me, in verse 5, I am making all things new. It says in Acts 3.21, and I'm just going to turn there. I, I'm going to read it to you. I'm not going to camp out there long, but I, I do have a few things to say. A few other verses you can follow along if you'd like. But this is Acts 3, 21. Paul is, excuse me, Peter is preaching to the Jews and he says, <clears throat> he, referring to Jesus, must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything, as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. He's referring to what I just read to you here. When all things are become new, he's going to restore all things. And that Greek word restore in its definition and how it's used in, the, in other Greek literature means a complete restoration, not just a partial restoration. Restoration actually back to the original. Matthew 19 Adding to that, Matthew 19, Jesus says this. He said to them, I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. The Greek word that is used here, renewal, actually is palingenesia. Genesia, that's our word genesis, means beginning. Pauline is the Greek word for again. Sometimes we use, it, it's, a, uh, it's a compound word, so it's a prefix. We use the word re, to redo something. To repeat means you, <laughs> never mind. To, to do something again. So this literally means the beginnings again, or the regenesis. It is God 
taking his amazingly beautiful creation at the beginning that sin and the curse has now broken and making it all new again. That is the regenesis. That is the beginnings again. That is the restoration of all things. So this is what he's referring to here. The power of the coming age. I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 6, verse 3. So I'm wetting your appetite to give you just a little bit of a picture about what that coming age is. The coming, see, we live in this present age, but there is a new age coming. Not new age, as you read on the internet, and this new age, this after Jesus comes back, that there is a new age. There is an age and a new order of all things in which all things will be restored. God's amazing, beautiful creation that Satan has tried to destroy. That's why Satan attacks you, because he wants to destroy you. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That's Satan's goal. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. John tells us in chapter 3, verse 8. 1 John, chapter 3, verse 8. So, in this process, in this life right now, we experience some of that, those powers of the new age, of that coming age. So are you there in Hebrews 6, verse 3? Now, you see, he's talking about five particular descriptions of a believer, and then he concludes with this. And he talks about who have, in verse 5, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age. Now, this is something that as believers we experience. We taste the powers of the coming age. The powers of the coming age are exactly what I, I outlined for you before. God taking the old order, doing away with it, revamping it, restoring what he had originally created, and he brings in the new order. It is taking the heartache and the pain and doing away with it and bringing forth something beautiful. It is God taking the old and renewing it to become the new. It is lifting the curse and pouring out his full, final, forever blessings. This, these are the powers of the coming age. It is life. First Timothy chapter 6, the, excuse me, I'm forgetting the verse. I didn't write it down. But it talks about the life that is truly life. The world talks about life, books of self-help to experience this life that we, that we live in and just to, for you to be a better you and all of these books that are all about us and what we can do about ourselves and for ourselves. And it's about me and it is, for the most part, very man-centered, very humanistic. And God says you can nev that will never work. When you're the center of anything, it will never work. But instead, when Christ is the center and you are now in Christ, and your focus is Christ, he begins to make all things new. Okay? The powers of the coming age are that life that is truly life that we get to taste now. He who believes has, not will have, though that's true, has everlasting 
life, eternal life. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have, what church? Everlasting life. We have that life now. And and, and let me just say, I'll word it this way. We don't have just like a little bit of life. We have all of it in part. We have all of it in part. And I'm not contradicting myself. Let me just explain something. This word taste. Some have imagined because of uh, you're there in Hebrews 6. In Hebrews 2.9, it says that Jesus tasted death for us. And therefore, by that word taste, they, 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 they want to understand it as Jesus just experienced death temporarily. But I'm gonna, that, that's not what the word taste means. That's not how it's used in the New Testament. When it's used metaphorically, in other words, literally would mean you're actually drinking. Like when Jesus tasted the, the bitter gall on the cross, that's, that's something different. Metaphorically, when we're using this in that sense, it means something different. Taste and see that the Lord is good. That's what the psalmist tells us. What does that taste mean? Is it just like partial? Like you get just a little bit? What he is saying is that you get to experience all of it in part. Now, let me use an illustration. And, and, and this illustration, I don't know a whole lot about, so I did have to do some homework on it. And I'm not going to get all profound on you and say things that I have no idea what I'm talking about. So I'm only going to talk about what I know. And it has to do with wine tasting. When you're, when you're wine tasting, you've seen them swirl the glass. They're actually looking at the, the, the color and the content of the wine. Then they smell it because they're about to taste it. Now, when they taste it, if I were to taste wine, I would just, yeah, that one's sweet and that one's not. That's about the best I can do. But these wine tasters, they rattle off like 10 different descriptions of the wine and it's like, what? What did you just say? But they're able to be very specific. When they're tasting it, they're tasting all these different elements of the wine. See, even though it's only a sip, they're, they're tasting the full body, the fullness, if you will, of the wine. It's not just, for me, I'm just tasting the sweetness. That's why I'm not a wine taster, okay? Among other reasons, perhaps. But I, yeah, I, I would have no clue what to taste for. But they get, when, they, when they're smelling it, they're starting to experience the, the whole cup of the wine, but they're only taking a little bit because that's all that they need to be able to know how good this wine is. They need just a taste. And they will swish it around in their mouth because that's where all of the taste buds, all of the different places on your tongue are experiencing this, the flavor of the wine. Now, I personally could care less about wine. I mean, but some people really enjoy just the variety of wines, and they can tell the difference. Now, the reason why I'm saying this is when, when they taste that wine, even though it's only a little bit, they're tasting all the aspects of the wine. They're not just tasting the sweetness. Why is this important? 
Hang on a second. I remember some... No, I'm just kidding. The reason why I'm sharing this with you is because when we experience the powers of the coming age, it's just not like one little thing, like God healed my inflamed big toe. That is, in a sense, making things new. Okay. But that is so much more... You don't like that analogy. I'll think of a better one. But there is so much more that God has for you. For me, when I got married, God wanted me in my marriage and my wife, in our marriage, to experience, to taste the powers of the coming age. He wanted us not to just taste the sweetness, but to experience all aspects of this camaraderie of us being linked together, of now us raising a family and pouring our lives into these children and being able to nurture them. And all of that experience, that's what he wanted us to experience. This word taste means to experience, but to experience it in full. To experience it in full. The powers of the coming age. Now, I'm not going to experience in full a resurrected body here in this age. I'm not going to be able, but I might experience his healing. I am going to experience right now the powers of the coming age in my relationship with God. He's going to renew my spirit. See, the Bible says in Ephesians 2 that I, I was dead in my transgressions and sins. That means I was a walking dead person. I I was separated from God. I did not experience that life that God has. But as an unbeliever, I, I felt like, yeah, I'm alive. Of course I'm alive. But spiritually, I was dead. But Christ, when I believed in Jesus, he brought this newness and this restoration to my spirit. There are other elements of this relationship with God that I have in Christ, that you have in Christ. And you get to experience, you get to taste in part the fullness of that, the powers of the coming age. You get to experience in the midst of tears, God wiping those tears away. But next week you may experience more tears that Jesus now has the privilege to wipe away. So we experience in fullness this life, this restoration, this power, these powers of the age to come, but we experience them only in part. So I want you to turn to Psalm 126 because now here's my question. For some of us, when we read about tasting the powers of the coming age, We have taken a sip, and we have set the cup down, so to speak. My wife and I, we could have done that in our marriage. We could have set that cup, the cup of the blessings of marital bliss. We could have set the cup down. We could have walked away. We could have gotten a divorce. It would not have been biblical. It would not have pleased the heart of God. We could have experienced the the ramifications of that divorce and the scars all involved in it, we could have done that. But we made a different choice. We chose not to put the glass down, but to continually drink from it. And this is what I'm going to encourage us to do. How do we do that? How do we not give up? 
How do we drink of these powers of the coming age of renewal and life as, as much as we possibly can in this age, in our walk with Christ? So are you there with me then in Psalm 126? I'm going to read the entire psalm to you because I want us very quickly get the background, but I want us to focus on this concept of sowing and reaping, okay? It begins, when the Lord brought back the captives to Zion. We were like men who dream. I'm going to just pause there. Do you know why they were like men who dream? Men and women, of course, who dreamed? Because they've been in captivity for 70 years. 70 years. And before that, they had walked away from God. Now, we looked at the blessings of Deuteronomy 28, but also the judgments, the curses. If you do not obey me, and they list in Deuteronomy 28, not just the blessings if you follow, but the judgments if you don't. The warnings then. One of those warnings. Well, let me just say this. They experienced perhaps all of those judgments because they just kept going astray, kept going over and over and over like the cycle. We see this cycle in the book of Judges, by the way. And they would eventually repent, and God would bless them. There would be peace for 40, maybe 100 years, uh, 80 years. But these Israelites brought, their nation had just come to this point where God said, enough is enough. I warned you that if you were stubborn and you just refused to follow me, I would exile you. And that's exactly what happened in 605 BC. About 10,000, Nebuchadnezzar came, destroyed the temple, Jerusalem to some degree. 10,000 or more, including Daniel. He was, and he, he was taken off to Babylon with his close buddy Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Many others, 10,000, they said. In, 19, in, in 597, there was a second deportation, and in 586, when the city itself was just crushed under the, the, the power of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, many died, and then many more were deported to Babylon. The 70 years now are up. The psalmist is reflecting upon all of that heartache that they had experienced, and now they come back to Zion. And they are elated. They were like men who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter. Our tongues with songs of joy. And some of you need to experience today some of those songs of joy. Because you haven't sung them in a while. And there's still heartache that Jesus wants to ex you to experience more of those powers of the coming age in that area of your life. So that your songs of joy are genuine. They're not just mouthed words, but they're from the heart. These people, they experienced tongues were the songs of joy. Then it was said, among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. And it's as if verse 3 is an amen to that. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. And I'm going to just pause there one more time. I want you to look at verse 1 and then verse 4. If we had a Hebrew text in front of us, they would read very similarly. 
because there are two Hebrew words in verse 1 translated, brought back the captives, that is repeated in verse 4, restore our fortunes. I'm sure that that sounds very confusing to you, but it's the, the same two Hebrew words. It's just that the second word can be translated either captives or fortunes. To restore or return or turn back, that's the first Hebrew word. The second one could be either captives or fortunes. We find this Actually, this, these two Hebrew words throughout the Old Testament, especially in the prophets, you've come across it. Many times it's, it's translated, restore the fortunes of Israel or bring the captives back of Israel. We find it everywhere. It's first in Deuteronomy. Moses predicted that they would be taken away, but they would come back. And when they come back, they would be Restored captives, but the second meaning, their fortunes would be restored. And so throughout the Old Testament, we see this phrase translated both ways. We see it translated both ways here. I think the NIV, what I read from, does a fair job. The first one, you focus on the fact that the captives have been brought back. Amazing. We were slaves. We were in bondage. And now we are free. We've been brought back to our homeland. But now God restore our fortunes. So in a sense, they've been brought back, but now we need to understand that Hebrew phrase a little differently. Now restore our fortunes. And I'm going to suggest to you, and if you did a fair study of this in the Old Testament, especially in the prophets, those fortunes are restored under the new covenant. They are the powers of the coming age. The the Christian, the believer in Jesus gets to experience The fullness of that, in part. Let me read on. Those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. He who goes out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with him. I think Cole made a a great point. There are times, church, in which sowing is just hard. When my wife and I, that first year of being married, trying so hard not to use the D word, divorce. Not this is not a topic, but it would it would it was just like right below the surface. How are we going to make this marriage work? We were sowing in tears. We were sowing into our marriage, and we were crying. There were times in which we literally did cry, and we're just wondering, God. Number one, I thought it was a whole lot more mature than this. But number two, God, where are you in this? We're sowing. We're sowing into this is hard. But now I want you to see maybe a a different angle with this concept of sowing in tears. Because for them, it wasn't just that sowing was hard, but that their lives were hard. They were sowing in the midst of, of trying to completely rebuild their nation. That was hard work. They didn't just go out into the fields and that sowing was hard. Their life was hard. In the midst of life and the struggles and the marital difficulties and the numerous things that were just not working, not going their way, 
and the tears and the weeping that they'd experienced in Babylon. They were still experiencing some of that. You know, Meredith and myself, when we got, when we got saved, when God changed our hearts, we brought baggage from our old life into our new life and then into our marriage. God was still in this process of making things new. We were still sowing, but I tell you what, it was hard because the issue that I was experiencing on my part in the marriage wasn't just my wife. It was because of Mike Curtis. Mike Curtis still needed to die. Mike Curtis still needed to see some of this junk in his life that was creating issues for my wife and I'd have to say the same for her. And she was struggling too. And God was taking these rough edges and with sandpaper, knocking them off. And sometimes with chisels and hammers, knocking these off in my life too. And that's hard and it's painful. And it's, we were in the midst of heartache. But we still made the choice, we're going to sell. I want to just tell you that in the midst of your heartache right now, regardless of what's on your plate, regardless of what life looks like for you right now, and I'm going to assume for all of us, it's hard. For some of us, yeah, okay, yeah, it's hard. But for others, it is super hard. And, and, and we think we got the battle, look, and then we have to face it again, and then again. And it's like, God, are you serious? Some of you have been struggling with physical ailness for so long. And I'm going to promise you that in the age to come, totally gone, totally wiped out, made new, restored perfectly, but we struggle now with our health. And that can be so wearying. So what do you do? You know what, God, I, I'm just not going to sow anymore. That's not what they did. In the midst of their tears and their weeping, they still sowed. Can you imagine? As Israel, before they even went off to Babylon, they were already incurring the judgments of God. The, just the cause and effect. If you disobey, you're going to forfeit all of you know, these blessings that I have for you. They were experiencing drought. That was one of the curses. If you choose to rebel and just run away from me and not follow after me, not obey my commands, I'm going to end up bringing drought. And by the way, that was God's land, not Israel's land. They were merely tenants on God's land, but God still brought a curse, drought. Can you imagine right before they're, they head off to Babylon, right before they're captured, they sow their seed and drought comes. You know what results from that. The crops don't grow. And if they do, it's a sparse harvest. And I'm sure they're wearied of this. And I'm sure as they're coming back, and I, I can only imagine this is how they were feeling. This land is cursed. We have brought this curse upon this land. But the Bible says that if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and if they seek me and turn from their wicked ways, repent, 
Then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. No more drought. So here I am. We have repented in the land of exile, and now we have come back. But see, I have been told by generations that it is so hard to grow anything in this land. Am I willing to sow, knowing that maybe, just like my forefathers experienced, it won't grow? I mean, there's a lot of hard work that goes into it. Am I willing to do that? And for some of us, when we face struggles in our marriage or any relationship, we want to just give up. We don't want to keep sowing into it. There's no benefits. It's just going to get ruined anyway. And as Christians, we give up. The challenge here is to keep sowing. The challenge here is we repent because that's exactly what they did and God brought them back. And now you've got to do the hard work. Don't ever let anyone tell you, oh, being a Christian and following Jesus, man, that's when the true blessings come and that's when life gets easy. I mean, yes, there are roses, but there are thorns too. We know this. And life can still be hard. But I tell you what, it is infinitely harder without Jesus. And he says, keep sowing. You've repented, now keep sowing. So here's my question to you. What do you need to sow into? What are you tempted to not sow and, and give up in? But I'm going to tell you this right now, that when you give up, because of the weariness and the heartache, you have now stepped into Satan's plan because he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He comes to make your life miserable and hard. But Jesus tells you no matter how hard life gets, no matter how many times you sow and it just doesn't produce the crop you want, keep sowing because, he says, even though you sow, go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, he says, you will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with you. That's, an, that's a harvest. That's an abundant harvest. This is his promise. He says, Taste the powers of the coming age and keep tasting it. Keep drinking from it as much as you can. Don't give up. Don't come to that point where, you know, it's just not worth it. For my wife and I, in that first year of marriage, we were so tempted to do that. <sighs> this just isn't working. And, and I'm serious, we were driven to our knees. We, God, whatever it takes, change my spouse. <laughs> whatever it, and then it began to be, to be, our prayer was, no matter what it takes, change me. Change me. Just like the Israelites in captivity, they didn't just blame the previous generations. Read about it in Daniel 1. Daniel owns it. We have sinned. The godliest man of his generation, we have sinned. And because we have sinned, we are here. God, forgive us. Us includes Daniel. Forgive us, God. In my marriage, forgive me. 
forgive me. Now I'm going to come back to my marriage. And I'm going to work hard. And I'm going to keep sowing. And I'm going to keep repenting. And I'm going to keep sowing. And keep repenting. And keep sowing. That is how you taste over and over and drink deeply of the powers of the coming age. Can you see that? I want to be honest with you. I am so looking forward to the fulfillment of Revelation 21 and 22. I really am. All of that. I will restore everything. Whoo, man. I look so forward to that. But in God's grace, I still have a little bit more time before I do. And I want to walk in. And I think you do too. You want to walk in those powers and those blessings of renewal and restoration. Those powers that break the bondages in your life. Those powers that break the sin cycle in our marriages and in our relationships. And in just these habits that stand in the way of what Christ has for us in this inheritance that we get to experience now. And you're going to have to keep repenting, church. And we're going to have to keep sowing. And we can never, ever give up. Can you stand with me? I want to pray right now. I want to ask God by His Spirit to really speak to our hearts. I don't want us to just say, oh, you know, nice sermon, Pastor, thanks. I want us to think about this and say, Spirit of God, what is needing to change right now? I'm tasting, but I feel like I put the cup down. Church, let's taste again. So, Father, I ask that as we're being challenged with these truths, and I believe these truths are encouraging truths, God. I want to experience more of that. I want to experience more of the restoration and the renewal of life that is truly life as much as I can right now. I'm going to stop blaming other people. And I'm going to let you, Spirit of God, just deal with my heart. Just like the Israelites did for 70 years. Deal with me, God. Where I'm feeling weary, Give strength. Where I'm feeling like giving up and throwing in the towel. Give me hope. Where I'm feeling weak and just so weary. Renew my strength. That I would mount up on wings as eagles. Run and not grow weary. Walk and not faint. Father, would you do this for all of us? Spirit of God, I do pray that you would speak so very clearly to every single one of our hearts today. Speak so clearly this hope that we have in Christ and in Christ alone. Not in the self-help books of the world, in Christ alone. And I just pray so encourage our hearts today, God. And even as we leave here, God, just continue to speak to us through other means of this hope 
and of these powers of the coming age and all that you have for us right now. And give us hope, give us encouragement to keep moving forward, keeping our eyes on you. Would you do that, Father? Thank you so much. Thank you, God. And if there's any here this morning and you want prayer, it's very specific prayer for where you're at, we would love to pray for you, to pray over you, to stand with you in your struggle. So, Lord, keep our hearts, keep our eyes focused on you, Jesus. And we give you all the thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm going to dismiss you. But if you want prayer, please allow us to pray for you this morning. God bless you. Love you.